0: Mark 11, 11 through 26. It's on page 68 in your scripture journals. This is God's word. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I said last week at the close of the sermon that the point of these next few months, as we walk through Mark 11 through 16, the point of, of these next few months is to really consider Jesus to pay close attention to all that he does and says in these chapters and and everything that is said about him. It's my conviction, it's this church's conviction that Jesus merits this close attention. Jesus is worthy of us looking at him, paying attention, pondering him. And I think what you'll find as, as you look closely at him, specifically in these chapters, is that he will often surprise you or confuse you or even startle you. Jesus doesn't fit in our boxes very well. That that was my experience this week in my sermon preparation. So each each week, I take a passage of Scripture, I, I read it, I meditate on it, I study it, pray through it, pull it apart. And then I put together a sermon based on what I see. And some weeks, I I walk into the week, I look at the text, and it's a text that I know pretty well, and I already have some thoughts about it. I I have a a general sense of what direction I want to take the sermon. This was not one of those weeks. This passage flummoxed me. I came into the week with some ideas about where I thought Mark was going and what he was up to, and some of those ideas have, have borne out. But this is a strange text, the way that it's put together. There are elements of the text that made sense to me, but some of them were strange, and and I I couldn't see, why do these things fit together? I I wouldn't put these back to back. So like we do every week, I'm going to walk us through this text, and I'm going to do my best to explain it and apply it to our context. And along the way, I'm going to point out what was clear to me what surprised me, and how I think it's all meant to fit together. To organize this sermon, I have three F's for us. And you can see it in the sermon title. The fig tree, the fruitless temple, and faith-filled prayer. Those are our three points. So first we start with the fig tree. Last Sunday we focused on verses 1 through 11, the, the triumphal entry. The Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel, rode into the city. The crowds honored him, rolled out the red carpet for him, called out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is the king. He's here. Bless him. Honor him. That was last week. And the scene closes with verse 11, which we started with this morning. Verse 11. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem and his destination in Jerusalem is the temple. The king has come into his kingdom. The Lord is has come to his temple and he takes a survey. He he looks around at everything. He comes to the temple, he looks around to see what's happening there and then he withdraws to Bethany for the night. And this is a dramatic pause in Mark's account. What's going to happen the next morning? What will the Lord think of the goings-on in his temple. He looks around, and now we're left to wonder, what's his assessment? The next morning, when Jesus is on his way back to the temple from Bethany, Bethany's this little village just right on the outskirts of Jerusalem, Jesus makes a pit stop. Mark tells us that Jesus, with the disciples as his audience, gets hungry, sees a fig tree, finds no fruit on it, and curses it. That's strange. It's a strange passage. Many people have commented about the strangeness of this scene and many commentators have been put off by it. They see here Jesus acting out of character. Acting, they see Jesus acting out of anger or petulance, taking out his bad temper on a poor old tree. What they see here, it's, it's as if there's a celebrity who's getting bad press for being rude to a waiter or a politician or executive who is harsh with their secretary. That's, that's how people look at this passage. And if you've been reading Mark's account of Jesus up to this point, you should hopefully know better. Mark and the other gospel writers, they do indeed give evidence of the humanity of Jesus. They, they tell us that Jesus grows tired or hungry or sad or angry or grieved. Mark doesn't portray Jesus as a, sto- a disinterested stoic or this deity that is removed from his creation. Jesus is a physical, emotional being. But to read this passage as petulant or ill-temper, it's to miss the immediate context, which we're going to get to, and the context of of the whole gospel. What Jesus is doing here is he's preparing an illustration for his disciples. Jesus is using a physical, tangible event To help his disciples understand a spiritual reality. What Jesus is doing here is like what he has done throughout the gospel, like when he heals the paralytic to show that he has authority to forgive sin, or he feeds the 5,000 to show that he is more than a skilled teacher, or he gives sight to the blind to show that he gives spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. Jesus is using the fig tree as an object lesson. He sets up the object lesson here in verses 12 through 14, and he's going to drive it home in verses 20 through 26. So in the morning, he prepares the object lesson, and the following morning, he'll drive it home. And so he sets it up. Jesus is hungry. And from a distance... From far off, he sees a fig tree in leaf. A fig tree produces figs first, then leaves. So if you see a fig tree that has leaves, you should expect that it also has fruit. That's the natural growing pattern of these trees. And even though it's not the season for figs, this tree bears the marker of fruitfulness. But it is a false marker. Only from a distance does it look fruitful. When you come up close, there's nothing. And so this fig tree is deceiving those who have put their hope in it. It's like a coffee shop that is open, but out of coffee. Or a gas station that runs out of gas. I've experienced both of these things. It's maddening. You you pull into the gas station, and the pumps are turned off, and they say, yeah, we're all out of gas, then close. What are you you doing here? So that's the object lesson that Jesus sets up. I'm hungry. That's a fig tree that has a sign saying it's open, that it's got figs. But when you get up close, there are no figs. And so Jesus curses the fig tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So that's the fig tree. And then we come to the fruitless temple. Scene one, the fig tree. Scene two, the fruitless temple. Jesus moves on from the fig tree and he returns to Jerusalem And to the temple that he surveyed the night before, we've been waiting, and now Jesus reveals his assessment of what he has found there. It's not good. Jesus enters the temple and he makes a scene. He drives out those who are selling and buying. He flips tables. He bars people from walking through the temple courtyard. So what's happening here? Why does Jesus respond this way? Remember what the temple in Jerusalem was. The temple was the place where God's people would go to meet with God. The Jews in Israel, they're God's chosen people, and God had set aside a place for them. The temple is like a palace. It's where God, the king of Israel, took up residence. At the temple, you have an outer court, the temple itself, and then within the temple is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the throne of God. So here's the place where you're going to go if you want to have an encounter with the God of Israel. It's a place of worship. And this meant that several times a year for religious festivals like the Passover, that's the festival that is happening during Holy Week, thousands of Jews would make a pilgrimage to the temple. They would leave their towns and villages and travel for miles. It would take days for some. They would travel to Jerusalem so that they could offer a sacrifice to the Lord in the temple. It's where they could come to have access to God, to worship him, to offer him this sacrifice. This place, the temple, was a big deal in the lives of the Jews. And these religious festivals were a big deal for them. And yet, God's people, specifically those who are in charge of the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, in charge of keeping the temple, managing what went on there, These people had acted corruptly and wickedly, and they had done a lot to profane and desecrate the temple. What's going on at the temple is the opposite of worship. The the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, their, their job was to steward the temple, And to steward the people that came to the temple, to to foster faithfulness and reverence, to hold up the temple as this holy place reserved for a holy God, a place of true worship. And they've done exactly the opposite. Pilgrims would come from miles around, and because they were traveling these distances, Carrying a lamb or a goat or a bull that, that far was hard. It was unwieldy, impractical. And so instead of bringing a sacrifice, people would bring money. And when they got to Jerusalem, they would purchase a sacrifice, purchase the animal for the sacrifice. And, and people, including God-fearing Jews, who are non-Jews, but persuaded that the God of Israel was the true God and, and wanted to worship him. They're, they're coming from all, all around Israel and they would need their money exchanged. You know, I have this type of currency, I need to turn it into this type of currency. And this buying and selling and currency exchange, it had developed into a massive money-making opportunity and had led to greed and corruption and exploitation. So here's a chance to make a buck off of these Worshippers. Vendors had emerged to handle all of these dealings. And those in power, who ought to have been concerned with faithfulness and reverence and true worship, they had become greedy and manipulative. The, the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, had become a noisy, chaotic, corrupt bazaar. People were buying and selling at huge markups, lining the pockets of vendors, religious, political leaders. It's, it's chaos and dysfunction at the temple. So just imagine this as a, as a pilgrim traveling to Jerusalem. You've come miles hoping to have an intimate, reverent, meaningful encounter with God. And instead, you're being jostled and swindled and shoved through the conveyor belt of a flippant religious charade. This had become meaningless. So so what's happening here is is really a remarkable scene, and it's worth slowing down to, to pay attention and see what's happening. These religious and political leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, It's their job to cultivate faithfulness. To help God's people be prepared for when the Messiah comes. They're stewards and they're supposed to keep the house in order for the arrival of their God who is king and master. And yet when the king comes, they are utterly unprepared They are unfaithful. They don't recognize him. They reject him. They accuse him of blasphemy and wrongdoing and overstepping his authority. God, Mark wants us to see, God comes to his temple and the stewards of the temple have turned the temple into a strip mall. And they're offended and indignant at him. Compare what's happening here in Mark 11 to the famous scene in Isaiah 6. You have Isaiah, the prophet, who is a member of the religious and political elite. He he would have fit the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. He would have been among them. You have Isaiah coming to the temple for worship. And it says in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah goes to the temple for worship. Maybe it was a regular Sabbath, or maybe it was an event like the Passover. And As Isaiah walks into the temple for worship, on this particular day, God grants Isaiah a remarkable vision of what's really happening in the temple. Isaiah sees with his eyes, he sees physically what's been happening spiritually. He sees that the temple really is the place where God dwells. It really is his throne room. He really is there receiving the worship of his people, interacting with and involved in the lives of his people. And Isaiah sees that this God is larger, holier, more glorious, of greater value than Isaiah could have ever understood or imagined. Isaiah responds in awestruck, repentant worship. When he sees the Lord on his throne, his, the train of his robe filling the temple, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is saying that even though he is a religious man, even even though he is a spiritual leader among God's people, he has underestimated God. He has lightly esteemed him. He has held God in low regard. He now sees that God is of infinite value, that God has more splendor than anything in the world, that God is more glorious than all the universe. And, and Isaiah is on his face in reverent worship. Woe is me, my eyes have seen the king. Contrast that with the religious and political leaders in Mark 11. The king comes for his throne. The God comes to his temple and they tell him to get his feet off the furniture, to stop making such a ruckus. They question his authority. We'll cover this next week, but verse 28 he's in the temple and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? What authority? This is God in his house. And and yet they're angry. They want to destroy Jesus because he's come into his temple looking for worshipers. So this is a warning for us, for for we churched people. Mark Mark is highlighting here, there is a way for us to open our Bibles In daily devotions, there is a way for us to sing hymns and praise songs. There is a way for us to pray prayers. There is a way for us to give our tithes and offerings. There is a way for us to attend worship, to listen to sermons, to preach sermons, and to be entirely oblivious of the object of your worship. We can perform religious duties. We can live a spiritual life in a way that is completely closed off from King Jesus. The religious leaders, they ought to have been ready for Jesus. They should have had their house swept and in good order. They should have fallen on their faces. The right response would have been what Michael read in Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is this picture of the king coming to his temple. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. So they should have seen Jesus walking in and said, Open the doors. Fall on your faces. Receive your king, he's here. Let's worship him, let's honor him, let's love him and enjoy him. Or they at least should have recognized him and been cut to the heart at their wickedness, like Isaiah. They should have seen, oh no, he's here. We weren't ready. And they should have fallen on their faces repented in sackcloth and ashes. But they don't. They reject him. They are angry with him. And so is it any surprise what Jesus does? Jesus, like a father who comes home from a trip to find his children in the midst of a drunken party, cleans house, flips Tables, drives out those who are desecrating his temple, tears down their sales booths, blocks the path of those trampling through his courts. And now step back and compare the fig tree and the temple. Do you see what Jesus is saying? With the tree, Jesus is hungry, and from a distance he sees a tree that says, I have food for you. But when he comes close, the tree is barren and empty. It's worthless. It has nothing to offer, and so he curses it. With the temple, Jesus is the king who is God. He sees his temple, the place that he has set aside for his people to gather, to offer him worship, to draw near to him, the place for people from afar to come, to make a pilgrimage, draw near to him as God, and yet when those pilgrims come, they find their way blocked by greedy, irreverent crooks. When Jesus, who is God, comes to his temple, his priests are not only unprepared, they grow angry with him and reject him. And so he turns over the tables, blocks their way, curses them as blasphemers who have made his house a den of robbers. The fig tree is fruitless and deserves to perish and the temple is fruitless and deserves to be torn down. That's the picture Jesus is giving us. And then he applies it in a way that I didn't expect. You have the fig tree, the fruitless temple, and then Jesus takes us to faith-filled prayer. This is, this is where I got confused this week. After Jesus confronts the religious leaders at the temple, Jesus and his disciples, they leave Jerusalem, go back to Bethany for the night. And the next morning, so now if you're following along at home, it's Tuesday. Tuesday, they pass by the fig tree again. And the fig tree has withered away to its roots. And Peter says, it says that Peter remembered what Jesus had said And said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus responds to Peter with a call to have faith in God and to pray boldly. That was confusing to me. I would have expected Jesus to tell Peter and the rest of the disciples to pray boldly in response to some of his other miracles. The feeding of the 5,000 or casting out demons or raising the dead. That's where you would expect Jesus to say, hey, look at this miracle I just did. Pray and miracles can happen for you too. Or I would have expected Jesus to respond to Peter's amazement at the fig tree withering with what he says later in Mark 13. So turn to Mark 13 verses 1 and 2. And he came, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, "Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings!" And Jesus said to him, "Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." That would have made sense to me. The fig tree has withered, and Jesus, for Jesus to say, "Yeah," and the same thing's going to happen to the temple. But instead, Jesus ties the cursing and withering of the fig tree, which is indeed a sign of the fruitlessness and coming destruction of the temple. He ties that sign to a call to have faith in God and to pray for mountains to move. Do you, do you feel the strangeness of that? The problem in the temple Is unbelief. Jesus wants his disciples to see that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are functionally atheists. They are running a temple of a God that they don't believe in. Sure, they appear to be the most religious people around, but they're all leaves and no fruit. They literally don't know God when he walks up and slaps them in the face. And Jesus tells his disciples, don't be like them. Have faith in God. Live as if there is a God in heaven who does all that he pleases and who loves to hear your prayers and answer them. Peter was rightly amazed to see that the fig tree had withered. It is impossible to speak to a tree and for the tree to die. I invite you to try it this week. It won't work. Jesus, in effect, tells Peter, You're right. It is impossible. Unless the one speaking to the tree is God Himself. Who spoke that tree and the whole world into existence? It is impossible for a fig tree to die at a word, and it is impossible for a mountain to be picked up and tossed into the sea unless you are God. It is impossible for a human to receive these types of requests. So it's impossible for me to to curse a fig tree and the fig tree to die. It's impossible for me to ask a mountain to be moved into the heart of the sea unless I'm directing that request in prayer to the God of the universe. And unless those prayers are in line with God's will and have in them a desire to further God's kingdom and Reveal God's glory. Jesus brings his disciples to a barren fig tree and then to a fruitless temple. And then his application is to call his disciples to faith-filled prayer. To have faith in God and pray for him to move mountains. So I'd like to close with that application from Jesus. The call to have faith in God to move mountains in our individual hearts and in our church and in our community. So Jesus says, don't don't let your religious activity be like the scribes and the chief priests who don't actually believe in God. Have faith in God. Pray for God to move mountains. So first we have these immovable mountains in our hearts and in our church. Christina and I were talking this past week uh, there's a Thursday evening. There's a prayer meeting here at the church from 6:30 to 7:30. And Christine and I were getting ready to come to prayer this past week. The last few weeks have been really busy for us. There's just been a lot going on in our in our family life and in the in the life of the church. And and there's a lot in our life that feels makes us anxious. Feels too big for us. Feels like these mountains in our, in our life. What are we going to do with this stuff? And it was so good for us to come and pray. It was so good for us to say to God, that's a mountain. I don't know what to do with it. It feels impossible to give, to give those things to the Lord. I can't move this, God. Can you move it? And we've seen it happen the past few years. We have had these mountains in our life where we said, "I don't know what to do. God, can you help?" And God helps. There I can I can think of examples of prayer nights, Thursday night prayers where we've prayed for something and then in the next few days or weeks The Lord moves. And so let's come to worship on Sunday mornings. Let's live our everyday lives as if there is a God in heaven who does all that he pleases. As if he is a God who hears prayer and acts on behalf of his people. A God who is able to move mountains and is pleased to do so. Which which is why it makes sense in verse twenty. 5, that that Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is saying, when you pray, you need to cleanse your heart like I've cleansed the temple. You need to search your heart for self-righteous pride or bitterness or unforgiveness You need to treat those things like God, like Jesus treated the money changers. Throw them out. Have no compassion on them. Treat them with contempt. Pursue forgiveness. Cleanse your hearts. So we have these immovable mountains in our hearts, in our church. And then we have these immovable mountains in the community. And I'll end here. There's a a group of folks from a few different churches who go out and have been praying for each home in Northfield and Dundas. And uh, Spencer Jones and Steve Bauman and I, we went out and prayed this week on Tuesday morning. And as I was going from house to house, praying and putting a card on the door, I found myself praying again and again at each house. Father, show this family that there is a God in heaven. Who hears prayers? Whatever's happening in this family's life, would you move in such a way that shows them that you're real? Would you help them to see your glory like Isaiah saw your glory in the temple? Let them see you high and lifted up, sitting on your throne. What would happen if, in a a neighborhood, every family in that neighborhood experienced God's presence? That would change those families. That would change that neighborhood. That is an immovable mountain. And God tells us to have faith in him. And so Jesus is telling his disciples here, Psalm 65, verse two, O you who hear prayer, to you will all flesh come. When you come to worship, when you open up your Bibles, there is a God who is there, who hears your prayers and loves to move. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see, give us spiritual eyes like Isaiah. Jesus, when you come to this church, when you come to our hearts, help us to see like Isaiah, to fall on our faces, in awe of the King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.